The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Hi, this is James, host of Between the Lines, inviting you to listen to what's new in experimental and ambient music. Join me most Thursdays from 6 to 8 p.m. only on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. Listening to the home of UC Irvine Athletics, 88.9 FM KUCI. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on on the web. This is Privacy Piracy with your host, Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and the author of several books, including Safeguarding Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a Step-by-Step Guide for Ending the Nightmare of Identity Theft. She testified many times in the California legislature and the U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and many other shows. To learn more, please visit www.identitytheft.org. So, let's get started. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. I'm really excited to tell you who we have on tonight because we have a local privacy expert and, we, you know, it's it's wonderful when we can bring on people from our local community because we do have fabulous privacy people here as well. And we're going to be talking tonight about the Fourth Amendment. And we have an expert who not only knows the Fourth Amendment in criminal law, but, you know, recently remember that case that just came down from the Supreme Court. It was, it was uh, actually reheard because... Um, when Sandra Day O'Connor left, they, it was like a 4-4 split, so they had to re-argue the case of Hudson versus Michigan. And this is a U.S. the U.S. Supreme Court carved out an, an exception to the Fourth Amendment, which was written to protect Americans from unreasonable searches and seizures of their persons and homes. So we're going to find out a lot about this, but let me tell you a little bit about Professor Jeremy Miller. He's a professor of law at Chapman University right here in Orange at the uh, School of Law. And prior to returning to full-time teaching, he was actually the founding dean of the law school. He also was a professor at Western State Law School, and, you know, I went there as well. And not only that, I was an adjunct professor when he was a full-time professor there. A great guy, and then I had the opportunity to get to know him better because for about 11 years, he was the editor-in-chief of the Orange County Lawyer Magazine. And so I would call him up and bother him and say, hey, Jeremy, I have a wonderful article for you. Then I'd have to talk him into printing it. But he was a terrific, absolutely great guy. Best article in there is a criminal waste of space. Yeah, that (laughs) is. It is. It was uh, my old boss, who's now an appellate court justice. Anyway, Professor Miller earned his B.A. from Yale and his J.D. from Tulane and uh, his LLM, which is like a master's in law from the University of Pennsylvania in in the thesis of legal ethics. A lot of people don't think that we attorneys have much in the way of ethics, but that's not the case with Jeremy. Um, and he was he clerked for the Chief Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court, and he himself is a prolific author, and he often lectures on um, continuing education of the bar. Terrific guy. I have uh, admired him and, and thought of him as a friend for a long time. Thank you for joining us, Jeremy. You're welcome, Mari, and the feeling is mutual, <laughs> mutual admiration. Great. So thank well, you for having me on. Okay. Well, everyone knows you're a professor, but I'm going to call you Jamie, okay? I wish Jeremy. you Please do. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna call you the right name. All right. So, Jeremy, this was an important case that came down recently, wasn't it? It was uh, deceptively important um, for a case that really shouldn't have really gone to the Supreme Court in the first place. Uh, it actually gave us all who love the Fourth Amendment 
a shiver of fear uh, of things to come. Let's talk a little bit about that case. In that case, the police um, who did have a warrant, they only waited a few seconds before they broke into uh, Booker Hudson's apartment, right? And then they found cocaine and a gun? Right. Okay, so that goes to the issue of violating the, the knock-and-announce rule. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Actually, uh, we can call it knock-and-announce. We can call it knock-notice. And the amazing thing about this rule is just how old it is. It's about 800 years old. It goes way back to ancient England, where when the authorities wanted to penetrate into someone's home, they had the idea that even the poorest man or woman in their home has privacy and has uh, some dignity. So before breaking in, they have to announce themselves and knock. It's just a courtesy rule. It's also a safety factor for everybody involved. So this was not some new creation of the 1960s. We're talking around 1200 that this rule originated. Jeremy, talk a little bit about safety, because I don't think people realize, um, you know, what you mean by safety. When If you have to knock and announce, how, how does it make me safe and how does it make the police safe? Well, um, it makes the homeowner or renter uh, safe because um, they might get all stressed out when someone comes to their door. If someone breaks in, they might think it's a burglar. Right. People have been known to have heart attacks. Uh, a very Kenneth Lay had one, I think, today. <laughs> he died. But um, people have heart attacks. People get stressed out, uh, and they... Uh, don't react well when people break into the door. I myself, I don't like people knocking it unannounced at my door. You know, when when the sun is set, I just assume be left alone unless they're you know invited guests. Right. So m- most people feel in their home. Um, number one, safety. But number two, when somebody breaks in, vulnerability and danger. Right. So. Um, there's a stress factor, and when, the, when people are stressed, they can hurt themselves, they can run, they can trip, they can fall, and they can have all sorts of physiologic damage. And I'm not just saying that. It's, it's reality. So that's how it, that's how it um, protects the homeowner or the renter. Um, and with the police, you know, we have uh, a number of citizens. Uh, I don't know exactly what percent, but it's, it's, it's more than minimal. Maybe it's half of the homeowner's in our locale, will have a gun right. or some self-defense weapon. I mean, everybody's got a sharp knife. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying they use it to fight. Or a baseball just, bat. <laughs> you know, just exactly. They use it to cut things, but baseball bat, exactly. Uh, club. So if the police were to just break in, I mean, if someone were to, to break down my front door, you know, tonight at 9 o'clock, mm-hmm. I don't know what I'd do. I, I'm sure my heart rate would pick up. And uh, I might go for a weapon, and I'm not kidding. I really yeah. might. Plus, people have dogs. Right. I mean, you know, and, and a dog is the human's best friend. And the dog with an unannounced entry might, you know, attack. And that that would not be unusual. That would be a good dog. Right. I mean, we have a dog, and if, if, if our dog heard something and started barking, I can tell you right now, Lloyd would be worried and want to get his gun. Right? I mean, that's pretty normal. When well, somebody wants to come into your house, you want to protect your family. Makes norm- sense. Normal indeed. And, and now that you've said that with uh, your engineer and husband, <laughs> uh, okay, I get my gun too. <laughs> you brought me out of the closet real fast on that one. But yeah, I've yeah. got, a, I've got, a, I've got a, the uh, self-defense weapon. Yeah. And I, I, I would go for it. Exactly. So um, it I makes would, sense. I would. You know, I would regret ever having to use it, but right. better that than the alternative. I've got, I've got, you know, a, a, a wife and a, you know, loved ones around me too. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about this Fourth Amendment that is so important. Here, it says here that it's the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So, Mr. Law Professor, <laughs> let's talk about what is the the origin here of the Fourth Amendment and what does all that mean for us as lay people? Well, 
Um, the origin goes way back, as I mentioned. I mean, this is something that dates uh, not merely into the 20th century, but into the 13th century. Right. Um, it's ancient. It's an ancient uh, protection. But um, to give a little significance, and we are still in July, uh, and we're near July 4th, to give a little significance to this, John Adams, our second president and uh, first vice president, also one of the uh, principal framers, said that the English, uh, or the British, I should say, when they were uh, being rude and taxing and disrespecting the colonists, they created the revolution simply because of their not giving the framers, the revolutionaries, the protections that are now rooted in the Fourth Amendment. They would have warrantless searches in the home, and they would be able to draft people to help them. These were called writs of assistance. They were not based on likelihood of crime or uh, past, present, or imminent. They were not required to go to a judge and describe what they were going to do and why. They just basically put uh, the colonies under martial law. And John Adams said that's why we had the revolution, was what's, what's now enshrined in the Fourth Amendment, and it's very fitting that we're doing it now, was the root cause of our breaking away from Britain. Huh. And wow. so, and yeah. now we now it looks like in some ways there's a lot of people who believe that we're eroding that Fourth Amendment, don't they? Well, we are. I mean, I don't think there's much doubt that we are. Um, the um, the Fourth Amendment it has two clauses. You just read the whole thing, and and nice reading there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> because... I just wanted to make it easy for everybody else because I know you know this so well. I wanted to read it for our audience. No, it's good. It's good. I'm just joking. I'm <laughs> That's good. Okay. Um, it has two clauses. And, you know, one is, well, it starts out by saying what is the highest area of privacy protection. And that's the person's own body as well it should be. And then the next highest area is the home. And then we move into <laughs> chattels. And then it, the, the two clauses of the amendment say all searches and seizures must be reasonable. And then the second clause says the preferable way to do a search and seizure is by getting a judicially authorized warrant where the officer promises that he or she is telling the truth, and they particularly describe what they're going to search for. And the rule has been for centuries that when they're doing an in-home search, absent, and this is the painful part of Hudson, the Hudson case that you mentioned. The painful part is the rule has been for centuries that if there's an emergency, a danger of life or a limb or, or hot pursuit where there's pursuing a criminal or uh, there's going to be imminent destruction of evidence or there's consent, they don't have to do knock notice. So the knock notice was not an absolute rule. It was simply the way to protect all of our safety. And, I, and, and you mentioned how does it protect the police. That we, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't answer that one. It protects the police because you can have an, an armed homeowner. Right. So the police could conceivably be heard as well. Right. Okay. So, so in, in this case, in the Hudson case, um, they, they didn't wait long enough, right? They waited just a couple seconds. They didn't seconds. really wait. They they. Um, you don't have to wait long with the knock notice. There, there prior cases indicated that even uh, twenty seconds, you know, depending on the circumstances, was enough. Usually, they'll they'll, they'll give you a minute or two, or a few, to answer the door. But you don't have to wait a long time. They just went in. Right, right. Now, is it true that if someone has an exigent circumstance, there is an emergency, or there is a fear of danger or violence that? the um, police can put that into their warrant? Yes, absolutely. And, and so then the judge would then say, yeah, you don't need to knock. You don't need to give notice under this circumstance. But the issue is, is it should have been in the warrant? Is that the issue? Actually, this is what's so frustrating about the Hudson case. I mean, number one, you're absolutely right. The, the judge can authorize a no-knock entry in the warrant itself. But the police had 
prior to Hudson, the authority to make a decision at the time that if they were to knock, that would cause danger to themselves or others or destruction of imminent destruction of evidence, or if there was consent, they didn't have to knock. So in other words, there already were exceptions to this rule. It was not a necessary case. The court went out of their way to do this, which is a scary thing when they decide a case that they don't have to decide, because the law would have handled the case the same way, and they admitted that in the case. There's something called my calls uh, inevitable discovery that if the evidence would have been discovered anyway, right, then uh, we don't exclude it under the Fourth Amendment. They admitted that there was inevitable discovery, and there may well have been an exigency with the destruction of the drugs. They didn't have to erode the Fourth Amendment with this case. They wanted to. Right. So this was basically the conservative versus the more liberal, because even, you know, when Sandra Day O'Connor was on it, it was 4-4. Four, four. That's why it, it's, um, wasn't this Alito's, he yeah. was the, the deciding vote on this one? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I, well, the, you know, what, what it boils down to is, um, we have an aphorism, and I, I know you know this, but if I may relay it, it's for every right that we have, there must be a remedy, or it's not a right. Right. It's just a paper. The old Soviet Union, they had a Bill of Rights, but there were no remedies for violations. So there really were no rights, or at least fewer rights than we enjoy. So the problem that um, the United States Supreme Court and, and the several states have wrestled with, particularly in the 1900s, starting in the early 1900s, is what is the remedy for the Fourth Amendment. If the police or a government agent violates the Fourth Amendment, how do we vindicate it? And the old remedy was a tort suit for trespass. Right. Uh, you just sue for damages. But starting way back in the 1920s and weeks, and, in, and it, it developed, what the court concluded was that district attorneys... Um, for whom I admire, incidentally, and I really, I'm not just saying that to be politically correct, right, right. but um, I have great admiration for them as a group, but district attorneys were loath to be prosecuting the police when they caught a particularly violent criminal, and therefore that remedy wasn't so good. Additionally, jurors were loath to give damages to the police, I mean to the to the victim of an illegal search, let's say one that was not preceded by knock notice, when the person the police caught was uh, factually guilty. So in fact, the Fourth Amendment was on paper well and good, but the remedies it had were only for the most egregious criminal police conduct, not for the kind of privacy and sanctity as Americans that we all have grown up with and, and, and love. So they created a remedy in the 1920s and, 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 and really gave it the power in the 1960s, and that was the, the exclusionary rule. And that means if the police violate, in simple form, if the police either have a defective warrant or if they uh, don't have an emergency or consent or something like that, then the evidence is excluded. And they found that this remedy actually gave the Fourth Amendment the teeth it was lacking. Right, right. I just want to introduce you again. We are speaking with Professor uh, Jeremy Miller, who is a professor of law at Chapman University, and he was their founding dean as well. And prior to that, he was professor at Western State College of Law. And we're talking about the Fourth Amendment search and seizure and the recent changes that the Supreme Court have made with regard to search and seizure law. Um, you know, you were just talking about um, the the remedy and that uh, the remedy is to exclude evidence that's acquired unconstitutionally, basically. When right, that's basically what you're saying. And yeah. Yeah. and so now, I mean, don't we have? I thought I read in this case that the uh, the Supreme Court justices said, well, we have more professional police now, and and you you still have you have this right to to sue for 
tort damages. And uh, but isn't it true that you can't sue governmental agencies in many in many instances? Well, yes, that's true. In many instances, you you cannot. But uh, there is. It's forty two U.S.C. nineteen eighty three is the. Um, the federal uh, statute allowing uh, a suit for violation of civil rights, and the Fourth Amendment is a civil right. And then we have the Bivens case. So that is legally true. I mean, or that was accurate, their statement, that yes, of course, you know, factually we can do it. Well, factually, you know, I might be able to sue the President of the United States or the Governor of California, but realistically... I'd have an awful lot of trouble, you know, trying to get my car fixed if they said that the the warranty didn't cover the part. Right, you know, right. So, I mean... And real, it's costly, real, yeah. Besides it's, being it's, aggravating, it's costly. Well, and it's it's the little little guy up against the, the big government. And it's very rare that the little guy is going to win anything, but particularly against the big government, this person is going to lose. So um, this was technically accurate, but in fact, terribly inaccurate statements. Right, right. So yeah, they're they're right. Forty two USC is there, and the police can be disciplined. But you know, what commanding officer is going to discipline the police officer for catching you know someone who's an illegal drug user? Exactly. You know, the, 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 the the way they might get disciplined is is if they break into the wrong house and right. they rough up an innocent person. Right. But, right. But the whole point of the exclusion rule is not to protect criminals. The point of the exclusionary rule is to protect you and to protect me and to protect every citizen so that we can have a place of repose, our home. And they've, they've undercut it. What they essentially said was the police should give knock notice, but the exclusionary rule is no longer the way we're going to give the Fourth Amendment power. We think it's just going to be okay. Yeah, I liked it what um, Stephen Breyer said. He said, that rule does help protect homeowners from damaged doors. It does help to protect occupants from surprise. But more than that, it protects the occupant's privacy. So that's what we're talking about is you don't have that privacy if anybody can just barge into your house. Absolutely. Um, The Fourth Amendment um, in the old days, I mean, way back before there was electricity, or at least that we knew about electricity is a better way to say it, the the way it was defined was it protected people against physical trespass, either to their home or their person or their things. But then with the advent of electronic surveillance, the telephone, all sorts of microphones and you know, a video, aerial, satellite surveillance, what they realized was that there didn't have to be a physical trespass for someone's privacy to be ruined. That, in fact, it was better to define the Fourth Amendment in terms of privacy expectations and invasions than it was in terms of physical trespass. The paradox is, this knock-notice case was a physical trespass. Yeah, it was. So this is like the, the most egregious case, frankly, that I've read in years. I know, and, and you know, that this, like you were saying, how deceptive it is, because people on, on first blush are going to say, the guy was guilty, they found the cocaine, they found the gun, they would have found it anyway, so what's the big deal, right? I mean, that's what you're going to hear. And, and, that's, and I think that's kind of how I started out. right. That, that this is not a case. They only decide, as you know, Mari, but for your for our, our audience, yeah, sure. Um, they only decide about a hundred cases per year. Right. This is, uh, you know, it's it's very intellectual work, but it is not the most difficult job of the world. A um, hundred cases with, uh, you know, nine judges. Well, we can work out the math here. That's not an awful lot of writing right. for a judge. Right. Um, so why did they go out of their way to take this case when they admitted that the evidence was going to come in anyway with it would have inevitably have been discovered, which is one limitation to the exclusionary rule. Additionally, if it had been argued, they could have said it was an an emergency situation where there might have been the imminent destruction right. of drugs. Throw or it down the felt, toilet, right. Exactly, or they felt in danger that this guy was armed, 
because oftentimes drug dealers, it, guns go together. We all right. know that. And they, they did find a gun. And they did find the gun. So they, they didn't have to get rid of a perfectly valid rule. What they were really doing was it looks like they were foreshadowing getting rid of the exclusionary rule completely. That's yeah. the fear. That is the scary part. That is the scary part because you give too much. Now, I'm a sheriff reserve here in Orange County, and I, you know, I love the law enforcement people. They're great. I work with them all the time. But I think any anybody that you give a free rein to, there could be temptation. And, and that is what's so frightening is we need to have these checks and balances. Absolutely. You know, and if I can echo in a parallel way the sentiments when I said, you know, hey, look, I've got a gun, so that says something about my political philosophy. Right. Uh, additionally, at Chapman, uh, I'm probably going to be the director of a new program we're launching in prosecutorial science. So I really do work with DAs right. and plan to work with them even more uh, in the future. So, you know, we're not talking here to the so-called, you know, knee-jerk liberal. Uh, you're talking to someone who loves the... Constitution and Bill of Rights, right. and living in a free country. And this is just an erosion. Why is, is an issue? Why would they do something like this? Well, the exclusionary rule is only about 90 years old as the remedy, but judges are always fashioning ways to make the Constitution have power and work. So it seems that this is the only way to make it work. It seems that way to me. And they went looking for a case. They really couldn't find a good case. You know, if they had found someone who was, uh, let's say, being attacked, or they found someone with an armory, and they didn't know that before, and they did, and they dispensed with knock notice without any, they just did it. Right. That would have been the kind of case that you say, well, you know. Geez, that's a hard case. And they say hard cases make bad law. They break into a house without probable cause of a danger or consent, and then they find an armory, and they just got lucky. Then you say, well, geez, maybe, maybe they're right to get rid of this rule. Uh-huh. But they, when they went looking for a case where it wasn't necessary. That makes me feel angry truthfully. I mean, I'm suspicious, of course, why they took the case when they admitted that the evidence was going to come in anyway. And I'm also uh, suspicious that when, if they wanted to do this, that they couldn't find any cases like that. And and it's also very scary that it was suspicious because, you know, it was a 4-4 when, when Sandra Day O'Connor was there, and it was such a close call. It was, right? It was 5-4 when, right. when um, yeah. And so that's also like, what what is going on here? What is going on with this court? Well, you know, um, we had, you know, Kennedy, I believe, who... Um, he sided with them, right? Kennedy well, sided. Well, he sided with them saying the exclusionary rule was inapplicable in this case, but the exclusionary rule was the chosen remedy for the Fourth Amendment. His swing vote there kept the exclusionary rule on the books. If if he voted completely with the majority, there would be some doubt whether we even had an exclusionary rule. Hmm. So it, it's kind of interesting how, you know, one judge drops off, and then the, rem- the remaining members of the court, they may get a little scared, like, what's going on here? Maybe we're going too far. Right. Privacy is something that, you know, is, I mean, you're the expert, and I, and I mean that quite respectfully, Mari. Yeah, uh, but, I'm, but I'm more like, you know, the, the privacy, the information privacy is where we've talked most with, you know, the information privacy, uh, uh, the, uh, the California Information, uh, you know, Practices Act and things like that. But you're really the, you know, you know the whole history. And, of course, you know, I went to law school and I remember all this stuff, but not like you know it. So, so okay. privacy is changing. I mean, there's so many aspects of privacy when we, when, uh, you know, when they talked about the right to be left alone, now we're talking about your right to control your personal information. But there's really, you know, gradations of privacy. And this is getting to the core of common law privacy, basically, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, that, that is what's most troubling is they weren't getting something, rid of something which was new to the law. 
they're getting rid of something which is ancient. Right. And that I mean, is the sanctity of the home. But, you know, you know that we have privacy of, of our body, and there are the, both that line of cases, and we have, um, you know, medical privacy. Right. Um, we have privacy in many areas of the law. The Fourth Amendment, I don't know, I mean, it's as important as any, maybe more important than most. But for them to search out, to keep looking, to find a case, and then to eradicate the, essentially, uh, when you start out, you said they've limited the Fourth Amendment. That's essentially what they did. By saying the exclusion rule is inapplicable, you know, the officer may or may not get a slap on the hand right. when going back to the police station and uh, what the dissent mentioned was, you know, the typical damages if somebody goes that far to sue the police for an invasion of their privacy under the Fourth Amendment, they'll get a dollar damages. Right. I mean, and who who's going to take that case? What lawyer is going to take that case? I mean, seriously, it's it's not likely unless you're going to get some civil rights lawyer, and then if they're only going to get a dollar, they just can't do it. I mean, it's, you know, pragmatically, they're not going to be able to do it. Well, and, and what's the effect, you know, what's the far-reaching effect of this case? Are we concerned about, you know, our drug dealers in the country and our armed criminals? Well, no, frankly, I have no concern for them. I wish right. them the worst. Um, <laughs> right, you right. Know, I, I'm concerned about me, you know. If somebody breaks down my front door, what's going to be my reaction now? What if they get, you know, the police often will go to the wrong house, the wrong apartments. I mean, this is, this is... And things like that happen all the time. They happen. This is not something, some... Pie you know, in the sky, school, right. It's not a law school hypothetical right. wrapped up by either a student or the professor. <laughs> it happens. Right. And that's why I don't think it's a good rule for the police, as I mentioned as well. It's, it's something that's troubling. And if, and if there's a desire to limit our basic constitutional rights, and we're talking about the Bill of Rights going back to September of 1789, talking about limiting these basic rights and the reason why we separated from Britain, this is a big deal, and it's a big mistake. And, and, you know, when we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, it goes to the whole issue of liberty and freedom. You right. know, I mean, to me, this is what's, what I think of when you think of uh, what we read about that goes on in China and goes on in communist countries and goes on in, you know, dictatorships and Saddam Hussein. You know, people just barging into the houses and taking what they want or doing what they want or trumping up charges. We don't we don't think of ourselves like that. But if there's no exclusionary rule and there's no teeth in our Fourth Amendment, then we could easily become this, couldn't we? Well, we are becoming it. I mean, I, I don't want to sound uh, too alarmist, but uh, we're absolutely moving in that direction. We have not become it. You know, we still have a Bill of Rights. We still have an exclusionary rule. But we've got, uh, they look at the, they claim the conservative members of the court that they are, you know, a conservative means that you don't create things. Well, they created new law with this case. Right. And they eradicated a rule. There's something else that's, uh, I'm sure you've thought of it, but if I can share it briefly. Sure. Um, Maitland gave a very famous quote many years ago, and that is that the law is a seamless web. It's all interrelated. And the amazing thing with the Fourth Amendment is that it really is the teeth behind most of the Bill of Rights. And if I can just give you one example. Give more examples. Well, okay. okay. <laughs> all right. Well, in the First Amendment, we have the freedom of religion. I think as Americans, we all are very proud of that. And we utilize that. We're a diverse country, uh, and we, you know, you and I are probably different religions. We probably both believe in God. Whatever. Or, we, or some people don't. That's their choice. Right, right. But how do you enforce if the government searches the papers or disrupts the church or synagogue or, or whatever? Right. Uh, how do you enforce their invasion? And the answer is the, the remedy of the First Amendment well, it's that same tort lawsuit, but it's 
more importantly, the Fourth Amendment. So when we start taking away the Fourth Amendment, we're actually undercutting the whole Bill of Rights because the Fourth Amendment is really the muscle behind most of the Bill of Rights. Right. So if they can go into some house of worship and take papers and effects and search and collect things, that's really the First and the Fourth Amendment is what you're saying, right? Absolutely. And they know this. They know that there's uh, the Fourth Amendment is the, uh, the most effective remedy to protect one's freedom of religion, one's freedom of association, hmm. etc., um, all of the all of the rights, or at least most of the Bill of Rights, have as the effectuator the Fourth Amendment. So this, you know, I don't want to be alarmist, but this was a dangerous decision. Well, that's why we call this show Privacy Piracy, you know, because right. we are seeing an incredible erosion of privacy in this information age and in this you know, changing times of security versus privacy. But I want to introduce you again. We are speaking with a wonderful professor, a professor of law, Jeremy M. Miller, who is a professor of law at Chapman University School of Law here in Orange, in Orange, California. So if you're listening even anywhere across the world, we we got some good people here in, in Orange County as well. And he's talking to us about the Fourth Amendment and privacy and, and how it's really interpreted. You know, there isn't any word. I mean, it, it doesn't really say the word privacy as I'm looking here at what it's, you know, it is a, it's interpreted to mean privacy, though. Can you explain that? Well, the the framers were, um, of course, I'm a big fan of the framers, but they were brilliant individuals. And if we look at the entire Bill of Rights, essentially every clause in the Bill of Rights, and there are probably you know, 30-odd clauses, most of which go to criminal protection against criminal prosecution by the government. They essentially go to abuse of power that the framers saw throughout history. Right. So there was persecution of religion, so we have freedom of religion. There were, in our own country, in the United States, there were writs of assistance, which was the police uh, or the, the Brits would uh, to go into a house or go into private property with just a general carte blanche, no specificity, no no what, what we what we now know as a warrant present. So the framers kept the language of the Bill of Rights general. Now we have to look at the period in which it was drafted. It was drafted in the 1700s, right? And if they had video cameras and video surveillance and you know, telephones and telegraphs and satellite, they probably would have used the word privacy. <laughs> right, right. So the, the court, there was a, a famous line of cases, and, and Mari, I, you know, you, you, you be the judge here, but they were, they were the, um, it was at the beginning of the fear of a real loss of our dignity, of the sanctity in our body, in our home, that caused this change. These were the microphone cases. Mm -hmm. And one line of cases were if the police or the government trespassed into your apartment, home, or office and planted a bug, you had Fourth Amendment protection because there was a trespass. Uh And then there was a separate line of cases which said if they could manage to do the eavesdropping electronically, right, by tapping a wire outside the house or by putting a little microphone outside the house, right. then there was no Fourth Amendment protection. And the U.S. Supreme Court was very troubled by this because they said, essentially, the police are doing the exact same thing. They're invading a person's privacy and dignity, and the Fourth Amendment should be covering these things. But if we define it in terms of physical trespass, which was the old... This was not in the Constitution either, by the way. This was just the interpretation on how we protect one's own privacy and dignity. And they said, since we've got two lines 
of police conduct, which are essentially identical, and yet our old interpretation gives us different results, we need a new definition of what a reasonable search or seizure is. Right. And before, reasonable was no trespass. And they said, now we need to say reasonable means no invasion of your legitimate privacy interests. And if there's no legitimate privacy in the home or in your body, then there's no privacy anywhere. And, and the whole definition of, quote, reasonable expectation of privacy, sure, that has really evolved, hasn't it? Well, it has. Um, we, we can trace that um, back to the famous case of cats, if any of your our listeners want to be the case. But, um, yeah, there was, it was a bookie making a, a, a bet on a public phone booth and right. over the phone, and, and it was tapped without a warrant. Right. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said that it should be covered by the Fourth Amendment. So from now on, we're not using trespass as our definition. We're using legitimate or reasonable expectation of privacy. And that really has two prongs. One is, did the person who was aggrieved believe that they were, what they were doing was private? Right. And two is, does society look at that expectation as reasonable or legitimate? Mm -hmm. And that's how the law has evolved. It's a, um, you know, it's, it's really withstood the test of time. That's, again, why I find Hudson so troubling, because the result would have been the same without changing the law. But our protections are less. Right. Now, Jeremy, the the thing that we're seeing, though, in our society is, you know, when you have that two-prong, like, okay, does the person in his own mind believe that he has a reasonable expectation of, of privacy? And then the second part of it is, does society believe you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? Right. Right? So, so many of us believe in our own mind that we have a reasonable expectation of privacy when we do banking, right? Or we believe that when we're on our cell phone that, you know, we should have a reasonable expectation of privacy that no one's going to get our cell phone bills and be able to see who we're calling. Or if we are, you know, of course, a lot of people think that they have a reasonable expectation of privacy with email and now everybody knows that we don't, <laughs> you know. But you know what I mean? See how that has is evolving so much with this te- technology. How do we, how do we make those mesh at all? Well, you know, we we do the best we can, Mari, and I and I don't I don't mean that facetiously one bit. Um, obviously, society has undergone changes. You know, if we right. look at Western history, we go back five thousand years. Uh, we've undergone many, many changes. Um, well, in the last 100 or 200 years, we, we have a technological uh, revolution, right. and we have undreamt of abilities electronically to uh, invade people's space with heat sensors and the like. And the law simply has to adjust. Now, you have some people who are slower in, to see that, in fact, that the Fourth Amendment was designed really to protect one's dignity and privacy, and there were certain safeguards set up, and the courts did their best. But, you know, there's an, another saying, and forgive me for quoting all of these legal aphorisms. No, but that's the, why I invited you. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, the wheels of justice grind slow, right. but they are inexorable. So... This is a mistake, but um, we're going to wait long enough, and this mistake will be undone. Because, you know, the average Joe or the average Mary, they think, why should I be? The, why should the government be coddling criminals, and why should I be putting up with this? But you know, they say uh, a conservative is a liberal who's uh, been mugged. Well, a liberal is a conservative who's been <laughs> prosecuted or had his or her house broken into wrongly. Right, so, right. You know, it'll happen to enough people that they'll say, you know, what are they doing? This was, we're, we're a free country. We're, we're not a repressive dictatorship. We're one that prizes individual life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We don't 
approve of crime, but we do approve of law. When they originally created um, this concept, I shouldn't say created, when they originally perceived that privacy was the root concept, it was stated by Justice Brandeis that government is the ultimate teacher. And when the government starts breaking the law and giving no respect to its citizens, then unfortunately that is teaching the citizens to give no respect not only to the government, but to each other. Right. So it, it's, it's, it's a very bad, slippery slope which this court is sliding down. And I... I and it's, it's inviting. In, in a way, you know, you, that's really a very important point that you made because here we say, yes, if, if we are going to give the dignity to, you know, the ordinary civilian, all right, um, and we are going to require that from law enforcement, then when they do act professionally, then we have more respect for them. But when they don't ha- act professionally, then we think of the corrupt police like south of the border, what everybody knows, you know, you can pay off or the bribes, and, and this is when there, when there is no enforcement of this, you know, uh, Fourth Amendment and all of these search and seizure laws with law enforcement. There's no respect for human dignity either way, either for law enforcement or for the civilians. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I agree, and unfortunately, I'm sure we're right. And the, 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 one of the amazing things that one learns in law is that when we sacrifice the dignity and the privacy, and basically the humanity of even just one person, we've degraded the whole society. And that's what they did. Right, right. So, are, are, and I guess maybe I'm a little bit more skeptical when I see how these, uh, you know, so many aspects of privacy are, are being destroyed or or eroded as we move forward with, you know, security versus privacy or, you know, uh, law enforcement versus privacy or security versus privacy, that really privacy gets, you know, uh, put aside often. And, well, and, and, and that's what worries me is I don't know if you can, once you really start allowing these kinds of things in the name of law enforcement or in the name of security, it's very hard to get it back. Well, again, um, as Jefferson said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and liberty once lost is difficult to regain. Yes, yeah, I love Jefferson. I, I, have to, <laughs> I have to agree with you. Of course I'm concerned. But I noticed in Hudson, for example, that Associate Justice Kennedy gave a little bit of a swing just to make sure that the exclusionary rule was not being eradicated from the law. And the United States has had many pendulum swings. I mean, I, I hate to call us an unstable society, but we have, you know, eras where the individual rights and liberties are protected, and then eras where they're not. I mean, really, um, we've, we've, we've endured slavery in this country for way too long. Um, and when did African Americans really get the right to vote? 1960s with the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, we've had the McCarthy era where, you know, it was dangerous to, to for you, it would be dangerous for you and I, who I think are rather centrist with, with what we're talking about, dangerous for you and I to talk this way in that era. But it's gone, and it's a time of infamy. We've, right. had, a, we, we've had internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, that's the Korematsu case. The U.S. Supreme Court said it was fine. They've made many mistakes, and there have been periods of, of fear. And, you know, there's the, there's the mob mentality where people get caught up, and then when it hits them, they, they wake up. Right. And I really am optimistic that, they will, that we will collectively wake up. And, and, you know, will it be too late? Well, as long as we've got the really primarily proud history that we have, it's not too late. Right. And and the fact that it was a 5-4 decision right. rather than 9-0 decision is also encouraging because that's that's still going to be the voice of reason will be there. 
the voice of reason will be there. And, you know, um, with our, you know, calamity of 9-11, I think that shook many, if not most, Americans to the core. I remember waking up and watching live an airplane flying into one of the Twin Towers. Right. And I was horrified. And when I took air flights after that, I had no legitimate or reasonable expectation of privacy. Right. I wanted them to search by carry-on. Right. I wanted them to, do, you know, if they right. thought, you know, when they were going through my my bags or my wife's bag, <laughs> I said, do it. You know, right. it's good. We right. don't, nobody wants this again. And this is... That was the right reaction, and unfortunately, we've had, you know, no similar disasters, knock on wood. Right, right. Um, so it's, it's a question of hitting the right balance, Mari. You know, it's, you know, the, the ancients were so wise. It goes all the way back to Greece and Rome, and we've got a, such an illustrious history that our framers relied on. It wasn't like our framers invented the wheel. Right. They simply looked through history and discovered it. And one aspect of law has always been balance. And we can forget balance when we're upset or there's a catastrophe or calamity. Right. But, you know, lady justice is always pictured with scales. Exactly. Of balance. Right. So this is, I mean, it's not only not new, it's old. The shock... And, and what we need to hopefully make people aware of is what the court did in Hudson by taking the teeth out of knock notice. That's new. Right, right. So when we look at this whole issue of reasonable expectation of privacy, um, d- do I have a reasonable expectation of privacy in my home anymore? Well, Yes, you do. They, they actually they didn't overrule knock notice. What they overruled was the remedy for violating rock, knock notice. Now, for non-lawyers, they might go, "What's he talking about? Right, What's right. the difference?" Right, but right. But in law, you know, they could have said there's no need to do knock notice, but that's not what they said. What they said was all nine of them. They said knock notice is an ancient rule, and the police have to do it or they're violating our law. We're, we're going to we're going to honor precedent. Right. But we're not going to give you any way to enforce it. <laughs> That's what well they 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 gave a couple of ways. I just Right, but not we, not realistically. Yeah. Not realistically is correct. So they they really um they didn't eradicate the fourth amendment. I was going to add something else too with these repressive societies. You know, and I and, and I always, you know, it's my ear. I think of the former Soviet Union as maybe being the classic, but they fell. The, the 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 general rule is when you've got an empire which treats its own people badly, they go down sooner or later. Right. And I hope and I pray that that's not the fate of the United States. I don't think it will be. I think that the, there'll be an awakening, and uh, people become aware that uh, they've been sold a bill of goods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the U.S. Supreme Court, even, the judges have been known to change their mind. You know, during the Roosevelt era, uh, with some of the labor laws, the court went one way, and then they changed their mind. They called it the switch in time to save nine, nice. save the Supreme Court. So Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of our, actually probably our greatest jurists ever, or at least one of them, he started out to not be a great uh, proponent of freedom of the press and freedom, First Amendment-type freedoms. And, he, and later on, he became the one who wrote our present law of the First Amendment. His dissents became the law. Right. So what we're seeing is, you know, a 5-4 case with one judge not joining the majority in whole what we're seeing is really that we're very closely divided, and they're at the horns of a dilemma. Justice Scalia, who one might look at as, you know, ultra-conservative, right, right. Uh, I, as, as we speak, it comes to mind one case in which 
the police are allowed if they've got something less than a likelihood of crime, but if they've got an articulable, speakable, reasonable suspicion of an imminent crime, they can stop someone briefly right. and they can frisk them if they have a reasonable suspicion of weapons. Justice Scalia said in one of his dissents, our proud framers never would have allowed themselves to be so treated. Now, this is Scalia, supposedly the arch-conservative. Well, what that's showing is that he's a human, like all of us. You know, it it may depend on what day you get us, and, uh, you know, what what do we have for breakfast? Do we, do we get in a fight with our spouse? Right, right. You know, and, and 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 if we take a look at the criminal, the one who was you know convicted, you know, obviously he's not a sympathetic character in Hudson. He's yeah, very unsympathetic. He's yes. an armed drug dealer. Right, right. So you, you you take a look at you or I who are the victim of this police search. They wouldn't have done it that way. Right. And they wouldn't have gotten away with it. They would have been outraged. Right. Yeah, he said, uh, Scalia said, suppression of evidence, he says, has always been our last resort, not our first impulse. So that's kind of where he was. He wants to, like, make it the very, very last result, only if you absolutely have to. And he felt, in this case, obviously, that you didn't have to, right? Well, that's what he said there. But, you know... uh... (laughs) But that was a different day, right? That was a different day. Justice Scalia um, is... You know, I think by all accounts, a brilliant, eloquent, humorous individual. Yeah. But he's also somewhat erratic. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that psychologically. I'm not making right, 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 right. In, in terms but of his opinions, his right. opinions, they're they're sometimes all over the place. Uh, he's not a paragon of uh, who and, and who of us who thinks is a paragon of keeping the same views one's whole life. I mean, it's my hope that every decade I get a little bit wiser, you know? Right, that we're going to evolve. Yeah, you know, the great Greek playwright Aeschylus said, one learns one's lessons by suffering them. And I look at myself, and and another one is, you know, um, youth is wasted on the young, you know? That's right, that's right, that's right. So, you know, I, I look at some of the things that I believe when I was in my 20s, in teens, and I'm like ashamed. I go, how can I believe that garbage, you know? Right, right. And, you, and you grow up. That's, you know, it's kind of like, was it Mark Twain who said, you know, it was weird. I got kind of older. My, my father got wiser, too, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like my son says to me, you know, never would listen to me. And, and lately, now that he's in his late 20s, he says, you know, Mom, I want to ask your opinion. And I, I said, you really want it? And he said, well, 99% of the time you're right. But, of course, years ago, only about 5% of the time I was right. Amazing thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's an absolutely amazing thing how, um, you know, we get a little bit older, and, and it's not like we get more stupid. It's strangely enough, we learn a whole bunch of lessons, and we're, we get wiser. And, and, and the, hopefully that's what's going to happen with our Supreme Court as they evolve and see how these really play out. You know, they, they, are, they can change their mind. But Lloyd's telling me that we've got about okay. a minute and a half. So, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I'd like to leave you with a with a, a little, just brief story of our gov- our prior governor of California, Earl Warren, who was a Republican conservative, and who became the most quote liberal judge the U.S. Supreme Court had ever seen, because once he got into that position, he saw the big picture and he thought liberty is very important for the health and welfare of our society. Right. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. We are going to be watching and wanting to know more about that new project that you're doing, so you'll come back in a few months and tell us what's going on. I'd love to come back. I'm very excited about this, Masters and Mari. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It's a pleasure to talk to you always. And publish your articles and talk to you on the radio. So thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and www.kuci.org on the net. You've been listening to Professor Jeremy Miller, who is a law professor and a Fourth Amendment expert here in Orange County, California. 
To see our previous guests and listen to their interviews, go to KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And there you will see pictures and bios of our guests and their interviews. You can also download our podcasts and even sign up for a subscription for our podcast. You can see our future guests. You can write us emails. Ask us your own privacy questions. We'll answer you either uh, on the radio or we will write back to you. So join us next Wednesday and every Wednesday. Thank you very much, Lloyd, for being a great engineer. And see you next week on Privacy Piracy, 5 to 6 p.m. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.